the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. I want you to know it is a mistake to think that the flood was a result of just a lot of rainfall. Sort of like we're in the tropics and we get a downpour and it just happened like that. That is not accurate. The Bible says that the waters came from two directions. And I want to paint a picture of this so that you'll never forget it, because this is something that was so incredible, and you can thank God it'll never happen again. He says that in Genesis 9. That's what the rainbow reminds us of. It'll never happen like this. First of all, the first direction, it says the fountains of the deep burst open. What does that mean? In other words, the vast subterranean oceans upon which the earth rested burst open, and for 150 days it spilled out upon the earth. again to our program verse by verse with our teacher pastor steve kreloff today we're going to talk a little bit about what the world was like physically before the flood it was certainly a very different world than what we have today another question that will be answered is how would there be a worldwide flood with just rain i mean how could there be enough rain to cover the entire planet those are a few of the topics we will be learning about on today's verse by verse program Now, Pastor Steve has finished his stretching. He's ready to go. So let's jump right into today's program. We read the flood began on the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. Why is this date given to us? You know what? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I'm going to make a suggestion to you in a moment. But I'll tell you this. It does remind us that the story of the flood is not a religious myth. You do not date religious myths. You do not carefully date events that are part of a myth. This is not a myth. Though it's very interesting, in almost every culture of the world, there is some remembrance passed down about the flood. In almost every ancient culture. But nothing like the specifics of this, because this is God's inspired record of it. Now, why is this dated? Let me give you my educated guess. I can't prove this from Scripture. I think this is right. It's really not that important if I'm not right here, but I'm going to tell you why I think it's dated. Most likely, Moses, who is the writer of Genesis, dated the beginning of the flood because that's how momentous occasions, significant events were experienced in the life of the nation of Israel. Whenever there would be something that would take place in the life of Israel that was a significant event, you would read something like, on that day, this took place. On that day. And so it seems to me that most likely Moses is telling us on this day, this took place because it was an incredible, significant event. And what a day that was. The end of verse 11, 
says this, on the same day, and there's the thought, on that same day, and remember, this was written for the children of Israel, so it makes sense, written for the nation of Israel, that Moses would put it that way. On the same day, all the fountains of the deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were open. I want you to know it is a mistake to think that the flood was a result of just a lot of rainfall. Sort of like we're in the tropics, and we get a downpour, and it just happened like that. That is not accurate. The Bible says that the waters came from two directions. And I want to paint a picture of this so that you'll never forget it, because this is something that was so incredible, and you can thank God it'll never happen again. He says that in Genesis 9. That's what the rainbow reminds us of. It'll never happen like this. First of all, the first direction, it says the fountains of the deep burst open. What does that mean? In other words, the vast subterranean oceans upon which the earth rested burst open, and for 150 days it spilled out upon the earth. I don't believe the world before the flood was, in fact, I know it wasn't like the world we have today. Mountains weren't as high, and the oceans, as we look at a globe and we see uh, these incredible oceans, especially the Atlantic and the Pacific and how huge they are, I don't think that they were that way back before the flood. Most of the waters of the ocean were underneath the crust of the earth. There were waterways, and we know there were rivers, and there were probably some oceans, but I don't think they were vast like we have them today. The waters underneath the crust of the earth began to crack The earth cracked, and all around the planet, they began to gush forth. Not just water, it would take mud, probably be very hot, and the waters began to come out, sort of like a volcanic eruption, and the waters that the earth rested upon burst forth. Secondly, it says the floodgates of the sky were opened, so now it comes from another direction. Not only is it coming from the earth, but it's also coming from the sky. This does not mean that it just rained hard, sort of a downpour. To understand what took place in Noah's day, I think it's important to go back in Genesis to chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we read about the creation week. And we read in verse 2, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The surface of the deep would be waters. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So at that point, it was dark, And it was uh, just a mass of waters covering this planet. Look at verses 6 through 8. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and morning a second day. A mass of water originally covered this planet. But on the second day of creation, God divided the mass of water by taking some of it, not all of it, but some of it, and he elevated it above the earth. I don't think that these were just clouds. Many, many Bible teachers would say, and I would agree with them, that there was a transparent canopy vapor that circled the planet, giving it sort of a greenhouse effect. There is evidence today that the world before the flood was sort of a uh, mild tropical climate. And let me just give you some evidence for this. First of all, I don't think it could possibly be just normal rain clouds because scientists tell us that if all the rain clouds over all the planet burst at the same time, you'd have about a fraction of an inch of rain covering the planet. That's obviously not what took place in Noah's day. It also says in Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6, that a mist used to rise from the surface of the ground and uh, would sort of water 
the earth. It hadn't rained then. But let me also read to you some evidence about a canopy and greenhouse effect, how devastating the flood really was. I'm reading from a great book called The World That Perished by John Whitcomb, many years professor at Grace Theological Seminary. He writes this, in the waters above, he's referring to another book now. I'm quoting from one book, but he's referring to a book called In the Waters Above. That's a a Moody Press book. A masterful study of the catastrophic effects of the collapse of the pre-flood vapor canopy, Joseph C. Dillow, in highly readable fashion and in amazing detail, carries the reader step-by-step through the controversies that have surrounded the discovery, watch this, of frozen mammoths. Now, mammoths are like elephants. Mammoths and other animals in the great tundras of Siberia, Alaska, and the islands of the Arctic Ocean. Similar in size to and somewhat larger than the Indian elephant, mammoths lack the oil-producing glands in their skin that would have enabled them to live in cold climates. The presence of a 3.5-inch layer of fat indicates a large food supply no longer available in these regions and not protection from cold. Even the possession of a woolly coat was no more the mark of an Arctic animal than is the thick fur of a tropical tiger, especially when it is seen that their skin lacked the erector muscles characteristic of all Arctic mammals known today. Dillo provides overwhelming evidence that the climate of these northern regions was once warm. And then he quotes, Marin Toll, the Arctic explorer, found remains of a saber-toothed tiger and a 90-foot plum tree with green leaves and ripe fruit on its branches over 600 miles north of the Arctic Circle in the New Siberian Islands. Today, the only vegetation that grows there is a one-inch high willow. Dr. Jack A. Wolf, in a U.S. Geological Survey report, 1978, told that Alaska once teemed with tropical plants. He found evidence of mangroves and palm trees there, and he goes on to say some other things. Fascinating, fascinating things. So I want you to understand that what we're talking about now is not just rain clouds that opened, and it was, you know, a tropical rain. This was the canopy. These were the waters that had been lifted up from the oceans, from the waters that covered the earth. And they have been suspended in the sky, and now it says the canopy collapsed. Could you imagine The canopy collapsed, and there was so much water stored there. Remember I said if all the rain clouds burst forth, scientists tell us just a fraction of an inch covering the planet? The Bible says here that so much water was stored there, it took 40 days, about six weeks, for the water to be released. That's how much was up there. In fact, you see this in verse 12. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So here's what happened. The waters that had been separated on the second day of creation were now reunited. What a horrible thought. But that's what took place. The waters above poured down as the waters beneath burst forth from the earth's crust and they came to the surface. Now I want to stop here for a moment and I want to help you to visualize this. In this day that we're living in, in our country, the big film is the Titanic. And if you know anything about the Titanic, that must have been just, uh, I can't imagine what a nightmare That was for those souls on the ship to go down into the freezing waters of the North Atlantic. I want you to know it was a whole lot worse what took place in the flood because there was no hope and no one escaped. Henry Morris, who has done a lot of work with John Whitcomb on these kind of subjects, a scientist himself, a Bible-believing scientist, has helped us to visualize the absolute horror of what the flood must have been like. Listen to this. These are his words. Visualize, then, a great 
a hydraulic cataclysm bursting upon the present world with currents of water pouring perpetually from the skies and erupting continuously from the earth's crust all over the world for weeks on end until the entire globe was submerged, accompanied by outpourings of magma from the mantle, gigantic earth movements, landslides, and explosions. Sooner or later, all land animals would perish. Many but not all marine animals would perish. Human beings would swim, run, climb, and attempt to escape the floods. But unless a few managed to ride out the cataclysm in unusually strong watertight seagoing vessels, they would eventually all drown or otherwise perish. And we know that only Noah and his family survived. Soils would soon erode away and trees and plants be uprooted and carried down toward the sea in great mats on flooding streams. Eventually the hills and mountains themselves would disintegrate and flow downstream in great landslides and currents. Slabs of rock would crack and bounce and gradually be rounded into boulders and gravel and sand. Vast seas of mud and rock would flow downriver, trapping many animals and rafting great masses of plants with them. I hope that helps you to just visualize what we're talking about. Because the last thing I want you to do is just listen to this and go out and go to lunch and think, oh, that's interesting. It must have been absolute horror, absolute panic, absolute devastation. And I want you to know most likely... The waters that were from above were very, very cold. And the waters that were from below were very, very hot. So that would have been a horror in and of itself. That's why we have like mammoths who were just frozen because it came so fast upon them, especially cold in certain regions. And I'm not sure scientifically why that would be, but apparently that was the case. In light of this horror, this absolute destruction of all living people and animals on the earth, but Noah and his family, what can we say about God? What can we say about God? Doesn't it cause you to wonder what kind of a God would do this? And I remind you again, infants were killed. Day-old babies were killed. Mothers who loved their children were killed. Businessmen, teenagers, people in the prime of life. What kind of a God would do this? A righteous God. As difficult as this scene is, a righteous and a holy God who has every right to send judgments upon sinners. Now, that may not be palatable to you, but that's what the Bible teaches. That's how serious the sin issue is. That's how serious your sin and my sin. That's how serious justice is to God and holiness and righteousness. And we make them kind of trifling issues. They're not trifling issues. He will not tolerate sin. The Bible says he is of pure eyes than to even look upon iniquity. But in the big picture of the flood, you also see God's mercy and patience. And I want you to see this. It reveals that God has given them, and watch this, every opportunity to repent. God did not just send the flood without warning, and mercy always precedes judgment. Never look at judgment as something that just happens. God always gives the opportunity to repent so that if there is anyone to blame, it is never God. It is always people. Now, let me just share with you. Did these people have light? Could these people have responded? Absolutely. I want you to know how patient and long-suffering God was, how many opportunities these people had. What kind of a light do they have? First of all, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 tell us that they had the witness of nature. 
pointing to God. In Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20, you read, because that which is known about God is evident. In my version, it says evident within them, but it means among them. And I take it he means here nature, creation. For God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The ancient world didn't have an excuse. Just like our world doesn't have an excuse. They could see great truths about God. They could see light about the Lord in his creation. They may not have known all about God, but if they responded to the little light that he gave them, and actually it's a lot of light, God would have given them more light and more light and more light. The truth of the matter is they had the light of nature and they said no, they didn't care about it. Secondly, they had the witness of their own conscience. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 say this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What Paul is teaching is that, yes, and he's making a contrast between the Jewish person who had the law and the Gentile person who didn't have the law of God, but we're applying it now to the ancient world before there was any Jews or Gentiles, and Paul is teaching that ancient man had a conscience, All people have a conscience, and they know what's right or wrong. They know what's right and wrong. They have the witness of their conscience. They know when they're doing evil because their conscience, that moral monitor, tells them. They knew they were in wickedness. Not only that, but Genesis chapter 3 teaches they had a promise of a Savior. How is Noah saved? He believed the promise of Genesis 3.15 that said one of the woman's seed would eventually crush the head of Satan meaning the Messiah, the Savior. They had the promise of a Savior. There were people who were saved back then. They may not have understood all the details of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they didn't understand all the details. They didn't know the name of Jesus Christ. But they understood that there was a coming Savior. And if they put their hope and confidence in that coming Savior, they would be eternally saved and redeemed. They also had the knowledge of a blood sacrifice. You have Cain and Abel. You have Abel who brought a blood sacrifice and brought it to God the right way with the right attitude. And you have Cain who did his own works and disregarded God's way of a blood sacrifice. They have that. They have the preaching of Enoch. Remember Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who preached according to Jude, said that the Lord is coming to execute judgment on the ungodly. For hundreds of years, this man was preaching a message of repentance. They had the light of that. They also had the preaching of Noah for 120 years. The Bible says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 120 years Noah was preaching, telling people to repent. That's a long ministry. Then it also says in Genesis 6, 3, that the Holy Spirit said, I won't always strive with them. So they had the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit of God, uh, working in their lives, drawing them somewhat to Christ, enlightening them. The Holy Spirit was there. They disregarded it. And in addition to all this, Genesis 7 says they had one last week where God put Noah and his family in the ark with the animals, one last chance to repent, and they didn't. And they didn't. So I want you to understand that before God ever sends judgment, he always gives light, always makes a way of escape. Why? Because he's patient and he's merciful. So we want to be balanced in our perspective. You don't want to just see what kind of a God would send judgment, but what kind of a God told people that judgment was coming and gave them the opportunity. You know, God didn't have to do that. God would be just as righteous and just if he never told anybody that judgment was coming. But he has. He has. And this is precisely, and here's the analogy for us, this is precisely the way it's going to be when the tribulation period hits on this earth. Even though people have been warned 
by pastors and Bible teachers of the coming judgment of God and the seven-year horrible tribulation period before Jesus returns, there have been people who have been witnessed to. Some of you perhaps have witnessed to family members, relatives, friends, and you're concerned about them. Well, are they going to accept Christ after we're raptured? There'll be a lot of people who will have heard the truth beforehand. Not only that, but even the media now spreads words like Armageddon and judgments and the return of Christ. Those are just popular terms today. And yet, the Bible teaches that the world will still be caught unaware by God's judgments. And I want to ask you why. Why in light of all that's been said about judgment will people be caught unaware and not prepared for it? And they won't be prepared for it. In fact, it's going to take them even a little while to wake up to the fact that all the catastrophes going on, natural disasters are not just works of, as we say, Mother Nature, whoever she may be. This is the judgment of God. It says that in Revelation 6, they're going to call for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them for the day of God's wrath has come. See, the question is this. If God gives so much light before he judges, then why don't people respond? I think that's a valid question. Why is it that people don't respond to the light? when there's so much light out there? Why did the people of Noah's day respond to the light? Well, that's what I'm going to tell you right now. There are two basic reasons and two types of people that Scripture tells us about that give us insight as to why people don't respond to the light. Why is it that people, no matter how much they hear, are not interested in judgment? First of all, number one, let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3. tells us about a unique kind of person. You might know people like this. They're called mockers or scoffers. He says in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. In the last days, he says, there are going to be mockers coming. Notice that last phrase. Remember that in a moment we're going to look at it. Following after their own lusts. And here's what they say, verse 4. Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, we won't go into all the other verses except to say that Peter says, look, when they say this, they forget about creation and they forget about the flood. But for our purpose, we want to see that there are some people who mock and ridicule Christianity and especially the second coming of Christ. Now, these are not ordinary unbelievers, but people with deep antagonism, deep antagonism. This is not your uh, ordinary person, but this is a person who has great hatred, intense hatred towards Christ towards the gospel, the people who just delight in mocking you. They make fun of believers and Christianity and especially the Lord's return. Why? Why do they do this? Sometimes professors intimidate college students. They make it seem like it's an intellectual issue. I was listening to a tape yesterday in which some fellow, I think he's a geologist, some scientist, said, uh, we've got to get away from these simple Sunday school stories. The simple stuff, that's just ridiculous. Why are people like that? I want you to know it's not a scholarship issue. It's not an intellectual issue. It's not a rationale, logic kind of issue. Peter tells us plainly what's behind their mocking. Notice the end of verse 3. Following after their own lusts. That's a key statement. In other words, these are selfish people interested only in gratifying and satisfying their own sinful desires You see, here's the point. The reason they mock Christ's return is that they are offended by the moral demands of the Bible. They're offended by it. And especially the teaching that Christ will return to judge their behavior. Because if there is one who will return to judge their behavior, then they are going to give an account for their behavior. And they're not just people who can do their own thing without the consequences. 
Now, a prime example of what Peter is talking about, and I've shared this before, but it's been quite a while, is the famous atheist and author Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley attacked Christianity. Later in his life, though, he admitted that his antagonism stemmed from his desire to be free to sin. Here's his own words. Here's what he said. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assumed that it had not, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds, watch this, no meaning for this world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to. For myself, he writes, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that the reason that he was so intensely antagonistic towards Christianity was not purely a scientific issue for him. He wanted to be free to do whatever he wanted to do. He wanted to be sexually free. He wanted to be politically free. He didn't want any moral restraints upon him, which the Bible puts upon a person. Judgment. The flood we've been learning about was judgment. God gave humanity many, many years to repent of their sinful lives and get into the ark. They refused. Why? Well, they had great hatred for God and a great love for their sin. We see the same thing today. As Pastor Steve said toward the end of our program, there are people who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ because they do not want to give up their sin. They do not want to be accountable to God. Our series here on Verse by Verse is titled Noah and the Flood, and we will be back next time with more great teaching from God's Word with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.